Hi, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our weekly podcast. Our signature is sharing stories of vital women, 70 to 100 plus, who shatter the myth that women become irrelevant as we age. We appreciate your support. Please join the Aging Reimagined circle at womenover70.com. Promote your book and books by women. Also, invite us to speak to your organization. And today we're delighted to bring into our studio, Sarah Levinson. Sarah is 75 and was born in Poland. The moment you meet her, you are taken by her infectious love of life. Formerly married with three children, Sarah lived in Highland Park. And today I'm happy to say she lives in my building in downtown Chicago. We were introduced by her realtor and mutual friend, Wendy Coburn, and we both belong to the Building Book Club. Talented and creative, Sarah has spent a good portion of her life photographing people and places. A veteran traveler to exotic locations, much of her photography reflects those trips. So Sarah, welcome to Women Over 70. We're really glad to have you. You know, you have a real zest for life. And so I have to ask, have you been like this forever? I think I inherited it from my father. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And how was he? He was um, always optimistic, positive, and had a zest for life, even though he went through some horrendous experiences in especially having to run away from Poland and during the Nazis and lived through the war and came back to Poland uh, in 1945. And um, all his family was wiped out except for his younger sister that he took with when he left. And what about you, Sarah, you and your mother? Uh, My mother, uh, my mother was pickier, I would say, about life. She, uh, She and my dad were very happily married for many years, but I was my father's daughter. Uh, And my mother and I clashed a lot, but... uh, Another special thing about my father was that I do not know how he managed to always make peace, but he was not a wuss. He uh, stood up for me and stood up for my mother, and yet, and he loved life mm-hmm. till that day he died. Mm-hmm. So, how old were you when you left Poland? I was 16. That must have been quite an experience going from one country to another. Did you come straight to Chicago? Yes, I came straight to Chicago. And, uh, well, uh, I came on a boat, like a Polish ocean liner that docked in Montreal. So I docked in Montreal and spent a few days there with some friends and boarded a train and came to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I've been in Chicago ever since. It was 1963. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so 
I've been in your apartment and I have seen the vast collection of photography you have that you have taken yourself. And it's so fascinating. So when did you begin to study photography seriously? And tell us a little bit about that. Well, I uh, picked up my uh, camera when I started having kids and uh, I, I, it's not like I've always done photography, but uh, I didn't take very good pictures. So, and I wanted good pictures. So the more disappointed I was, the more I started reading and looking at photos and uh, figuring out techniques. Uh, I have not had any formal schooling in photography, although I did take several classes at Columbia College while I lived in Highland Park. Um, but it was a long, long trip. And I've always had to make sure that my classes were between the time that my kids left for school and came back, for, uh, came back from school. So uh, I would always be available. I, uh, so, but workshops and other photographers and uh, just there's a lot of information available if you have to teach yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Pretty much a self-taught photographer. Mm -hmm. And and uh, for the photographers in our audience, what what kinds of cameras do you use? I've always had Nikons, uh, and I started uh, with uh, black and white film, and I eventually made sure that I had a darkroom wherever I lived. So I went through the whole thing, process, uh, taking photos, developing photos, and printing photos in my darkroom. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I've always had Nikons, and I still have Nikons. Uh-huh. <laughs> So you, so many of your uh, photographs are from exotic locations, and I know you've traveled to India several times. How, how did that all come about? Well, uh, there was one day I uh, just got a mailing from Santa Fe Workshops, and I've always, up until that point, I've always just done black and white photography and the workshop was called uh, the poetry of color and I said wow poetry and color and it was held in San Miguel Mexico <laughs> <laughs> and that was it I signed up and I went and it was still film but it was slight film and uh, I got into color and it not right away, but because of, the cameras were still too primitive. And uh, but once the technology got to the point that it's user friendly, I totally embraced color and digital photography, and both printing, uh, taking the photos, printing. Uh, Photoshop, Lightroom, uh, editing uh, software. It, it, it was a 
great learning experience. It certainly kept my brain engaged, and it still does. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's that's that curve never stops. It's just there's always more to learn and more to experiment with. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, did you take this up after you retired or at a certain age? No, I I I. I started being more serious uh, the minute I picked up my camera. And that was when my kids were little. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my oldest one is, who should I tell? Over, slightly over 50. And my youngest is slightly over 40. So uh, when they were in school, I would go take my camera, go in the streets and photograph as much as I could get in while my kids were in school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and when did you start traveling to these remote places? Well, uh, I uh, I started traveling seriously in nineteen uh, in twenty ten. My first trip was to Guatemala, and uh, I, I was kind of, we were, it was a big group, several, several uh, photographers, we were having dinner one time, and we all were talking about uh, our camping experiences, and I'm not a camper, so I made this remark sitting next to Nevada Weir, who at the time was one of the leaders and fabulous, fabulous photographer, travel photographer. And I said, well, I wouldn't mind camping in the lobby of the Ritz. Mm-hmm. And she looked at me and she said, okay, Sarah, I'm leading a trip to India in a few months. I'm going to put you on my uh, email list and will you come? And she totally shamed me. And I thought, sure, send me an email. And there I was on my first trip to India with Nevada Weir. Uh, It was um, to Gujarat, the state of Gujarat. And uh, it was an amazing experience because Nevada Weir, um, being a National Geographic photographer didn't go to Agra, but she would go to very remote places and had her contacts there. And uh, when I got home, my ex-husband said, well, did you see uh, Taj Mahal? And I said, no, I was nowhere near Taj Mahal. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go back. And of course, um, her list is very private and she sends out email about the upcoming trips and you have to literally be at your computer or so you can respond yes mm-hmm. or she fills up and she takes very and the groups are very small so um i've taken several trips with her since when I didn't get in, but I was on a waiting list. And then I ended up being uh, able to get on because I was on a mailing list. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So where else, Sarah, have you, have you these re- remote locations? Where else? 
spent a couple of weeks with Nevada on a traveling on a Chinwin River river in Myanmar. Different locations in India where you really have to have special permissions to get to like uh, Assam and uh, Nagaland because there were, when we were there, they were not totally safe and mm. the government kind of regulated, Indian government regulated that territory mm. uh, for several reasons, but she was able to do it. And then south of India, it's like being in different countries mm-hmm. uh, and different cultures and different really unusual um, happenings. And she usually will plan a trip based on what's happening. Uh, let's say the south of India trip that I took with her happened in January because we wanted to photograph uh something called Tayam Dancers. Uh, and that's just the most, not the most extreme thing, because all the things seem to be extreme. What, what are they, uh, Sarah? Tayam Dancers are uh, basically a festival and they're religious in nature. They happen in, I believe, January and February only, where the... Uh, the cast uh, uh, untouchables uh, dress up as gods. And in several temples, there's like the place that I've spent uh, photographing was called Kanur. It's a city in the South, Uh, very primitive, not a lot of hotels to speak of. Uh, So you have to be where, wherever, the best available, let's put it this way. And there is these huge happenings that uh, this suppose this untouchable turns into a god by putting makeup on and costumes and then um, dancing a certain, we call it dancing, but it is a religious ceremony uh, uh, wording of evil, it's where the evil gets defeated by the good. So the gods are the good. But uh, it happens, they're 24 hours a day for, so there's different gods and different, and all night long too. And the night ceremonies are the most amazing because there's a lot of fire involved. Uh, and uh, I could go on about this for an hour, if not more, but I would like to return to that place, and I may have the opportunity in uh, February Mm. uh, because I was not good at taking a video, and you really have to try and video uh, the dance, the ritual dance, where there's drums and smoke and people and uh, the gods are dressed up. I mean, it takes hours to put on what, uh, what they put on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have, there's like green rooms, literally uh, like tents where they have helpers. And, uh, and then 
what happens, they do bless everybody, including the Brahmins. They become superior beings to the Brahmins who come to get their blessings. And that's how they also make money, because the, whoever you bless offers you money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they usually have to make enough money to last for the rest of the year, because mm-hmm. after that, they become untouchable. Untouchables again. Uh-huh. So, Sarah, I'm curious about what have been some of the most challenging adjustments you've needed to make traveling with, to remote locations? Uh, keeping an open mind that uh, we've had, especially India, we've, I have the best guides no matter where I go. And I've been going without Nevada with a friend of mine who I met on my first trip. And we've become partners uh, over the years where it just the two of us will go using the same guide that Nevada does. And I've become friends with this uh, man who like represents Indian tourism and makes the most amazing arrangements no matter where we are, no matter where we go. We, we've had to go where there was places where there's no tourism, so there's no hotels or restaurants, but he will arrange uh, living quarters where you have to live in a, somebody's hut where, they, uh, uh, where there's primitive toilets or showers <laughs> arrangements and Sometimes animals uh, come into your, because the, the animals sometimes just come in to the huts. Uh, and, uh, but we had the most amazing cooks always, some of the best meals they would be able to make. But it was our crew. They traveled with us. Is this ashram that you were telling me about? Well, that's ashram is a totally different uh, story. The ashram, I was just with my friend Anan, and we were uh, we planned to photograph something totally different. We were gonna uh, photograph uh, in Barsana uh, the colors, the colors, and that is the craziest and the most intense uh, holy experience because it's a birthplace of Krishna and colors are about the holy holiday is about Krishna, his birth. And uh, the closest hotel that was available was in Vrindavan, which is like 35 minutes by car, I think, if I remember correctly. So when we arrived in Vrindavan, so we could go to Prasanna the following day to photograph Holly. As I was driving, I realized there were signs that I was seeing along the way, ashram, widow's ashram. So I turned to the guide and I said, "Uh, is it possible to gain entrance? Could we go visit? my guy turned around and says, I don't think so, uh, because that has to be arranged way ahead of time. So I'm in my hotel and uh, waiting for the next day. We have free time. 
It's about three, four o'clock in the afternoon. My phone rings. It's my guide saying, if you still want to go to an ashram, there's one I can get you into. Mm -hmm. And my interest in uh, going to a widow's ashram started years um, before where I saw a movie that was nominated for the best foreign film called Water. And it deals, it's just beautiful. And it deals with uh, the widow's situation and child's marriage. Um, but I never, it just simply jogged my memory as I was in a car that, oh my God, I'm in a place where uh, the movie, it, it still exists. The movie happens to date, tell a story about something that's happening in Gandhi time. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't kind of mentally connect to the fact that it could have, that it still exists until I'm driving down the street and there it is. So is, so it, a anyway, is it a place or a... It is um, the, the situation, the widow situations in India is as follows. It's Hindu. And when you become a widow, you become a persona non grata. Mm -hmm. um, it's bad karma to be at weddings, to be at births, and uh, but the poorest of the families just take the women out. If your husband dies, you're out. So the women basically are penniless and go. They go to religious centers where they um, and Vrindavan is one of them. Varanasi is another one. And there's an estimate that I've heard that there's about anywhere from 30,000 to 50,000, if not more widows, just they're just begging in the streets, they have no place to live. And But there's some organizations now that have sprung up where they uh, uh, build facilities for widows, they're private. The one that I've seen uh, was private. Uh, well, to make a long story short, at least shorter, I my experience in this ashram was that I, I went in and I had my camera, but I was there with my friend and partner, Anand, just the two of us, and the driver and the guides and... Uh, I did not know how to behave, so I didn't put a camera to my, uh, I just um, observed, and it was a room with a bun bunch of women sitting on the floor chanting. And uh, down the hall were the bedroom, there's communal bedrooms and communal kitchen. But at six o'clock, the meal is over, so now these women sit and, uh, tent. So I walked in, I see the room full of women chanting, sitting on the floor. One was playing a little drum and uh, they chant to Krishna. Uh, and as I started moving down the hallway to see the bedroom, there's this little old woman 
walking towards me and uh, I thought she outstretched her arms to me, but my friends said no, that I just outstretched my arms and hugged her and she just hung on to me and hung on to me. And when I finally turned around, every woman in the room was looking at me and there were tears in the eyes of my uh, friend and my and the guide, and I just like, what's up? And the guide explained that it's bad luck to touch them or even rub against them. So they have, these women, chances are, have had no human touch, have felt no human touch in years and years. So right then and then, when I heard that, I went around the room and hugged every single woman that was sitting there and they all stretched their arms to me as I was approaching um and I came home to Chicago and said to my friend as I was traveling back home with my friend I said I'm gonna go back to India and just hug widows Mm -hmm. (laughs) wow and months later he calls me and he says we're going back to India And I have a source that we'll meet with and uh, you'll be able to go and to see the ashram in Vrindavan. Turns out her name is Mohini Giri. She was the daughter-in-law of President Giri. She became a widow at the age of 50 and uh, she's a was and is probably a very wealthy woman and very well educated. And she went to Vridavan, bought a parcel of land and built a compound for women and widows. And um, the following year we went to state in Delhi. He made, my friend made the arrangements that we could meet with her. And she allowed me to go to the, uh, ashram. I stayed there for five days. I just hung out with the widows and I did take a bunch of portraits uh, and uh, came back to Delhi. She, we talked. She wanted to publish a book of the widows, but that's never happened yet. Uh, there was COVID and there was other things that interfered with uh, me going back, but I believe I'm going back in October and probably February. Sarah, is this where you you started to think about beauty past its prime? No, that was beauty past its prime started totally differently, and it, I think it has to do with COVID. I was sort of bumped by uh, not being able to travel and uh, just the whole thing, the isolation. Uh, And I was one day walking, and I've thought about it sort of before photographing flowers or working in macro photography, because I did that years ago and I really enjoyed it. But... uh, I just didn't want to photograph flowers again. And I was, 
you know, I love to walk a lot and I go to the park a lot. And I was walking around fall and I realized that some of the, I started looking closer at things that were about past their prime because it was fall. And I started picking up little branch here, little uh, leaf here. And I decided that maybe I will do a body of work based on that. Uh, and I thought they were still beautiful, but past their prime. And that's what I'm thinking about. And I'm testing lighting and testing lenses and testing. It's not as simple as, um, it's not a simple task. It's to do it well, there's a lot of hurdles to get through. So you're learning again. I'm learning again, yes. Yes. Uh, and, and so uh, the widows that you saw, that that didn't bring up this whole idea. No. Mm -mm. No. Okay. So, so is it beauty past its prime in the environment, or are you also beauty past its prime with regard to women? Well, I thought about that, and it's just an open-ended uh, thought process. Mm -hmm. They might might relate to women. Uh, as well, there is a, a long time ago, well, when I started traveling, my second trip to San Miguel was with a very well-known photographer, Joyce Tennyson. I don't know if anybody, if you guys heard about her, but uh, she's a totally different photographer. And uh, we didn't photograph. We just, the workshop was, the, the retreat was called Retreat for Creative Women. Mm. And during, I, I, I've seen a bunch of her, several bunch of her books, and I did, there is one called, oh, what is it called? I have it on my night, uh, on my uh, coffee table. Uh, we have her name, so. Right. But she's done a beautiful, beautiful series of uh, aging women. And, but they're, they're not just ordinary women. They're famous. And she has access to celebrity women. Mm. And it's a beautiful book. And uh, again, I don't have access to celebrities that are... Uh, but why do they have to be celebrities? Women are women. <laughs> so it may, it may get to it because <laughs> my specialty actually is portraits. So it would be, um, I wouldn't have to actually figure out portraits, although I don't have a studio anymore. I did in my other condo and lighting and that would be easy, but I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> and what what do you see moving forward now for yourself? Uh, do you think about aging at all? Are you talking about these exotic trips continuing? Oh, absolutely. I am going. I have two planned. And I did go to with another photographer uh, 
I did go to Tajikistan and Uzbekistan like last August. It, it was in the midst of uh, COVID. Mm. And that was interesting, um, but also disappointing photographically. Uh, because the security of approaching people that you had no idea if they're vaccinated and unmasked, uh, that was always smart. Although I did do it a few times in a market, I couldn't resist. But the problem would have been if one of us got COVID, right. we would be all stuck together staying. Right. Uh, in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And what the difficulty was, there was silly that I didn't research the temperatures because it was very hot besides. <laughs> so there weren't a lot of access to people except for crowded markets mm. where I wasn't necessarily thinking I'm safe from COVID, even though I wore a mask all the time. But I didn't know how my mask would have been received. And also, uh, when we were in Tajikistan, uh, Uzbekistan was overrun, not Uzbekistan, uh, Afghanistan was overrun by um, the Taliban. And we were literally had to change our itinerary several times because there were, Tajikistan shares a huge border with Afghanistan mm-hmm. and the border is natural river. So it's, they really were across the river. Hmm. And uh, we had exceptionally good guides that made sure that we were always safe. So time has a way of going so quickly, unfortunately. Uh-huh. And yes. we are going to have to bring this to a close soon. Uh, is there anything you think about in terms of what you might have done differently when you were younger or, you know, what is just burning that you think you, you are still going to do before uh, you can't do it anymore? Well, I, you asked me if I've thought about aging. Yes, I have. Uh, in the relationship to my travels, as I bought people always say, why do you go da da da? where you go. And I said, because they're very difficult places to go. And I'm going to save the closer places and maybe a little less uh, difficult for when I get older. So I don't have to stop maybe, mm-hmm. but continue. Uh, and yes, I have thought about aging to the point that I had a discussion with my kids what I want. They all support me and they're smart and wonderful adults. And I don't need to discuss it with them anymore. So I had that conversation and now I feel that every day I feel great. I am going to do something, uh, be it photographically or getting in a pool or taking long walks or any opportunity that comes my way, I will go for it. <laughs> well, that's great. That's that's just great. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you uh-huh. so much, Sarah. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing these stories with us. 
And uh, someday maybe you'll have a big show and we can come to see all of this, the fruit of your labors. <laughs> yes, I would love to attend also. That's been well, fascinating, Sarah. You're welcome yeah. to come over anytime. And uh, I do have a website that's definitely totally not complete. It, I'm behind like three, four years uh, <laughs> in editing. And I'm kind of mad at myself that I didn't do better during COVID, but I just wasn't in a mood. So I did. <laughs> Tell us what the website is. It's sarahlevinsonphoto.com. sarahlevinsonphoto.com. Okay. That's great. And there's no H in Sarah. So it's. Right. Yeah. yeah. Some people say, I've tried, I've tried, I tried, and turns out that they stuck an H at the end of my (laughs) Well, since Catherine and I are lucky enough to be near where you live, we may just both come to see more photographs. Mm, (laughs) Anytime, anytime. Some are on my walls, some are matted in the stands. Yes. And, um, I have seen some of them, and they are really wonderful. So thanks again, Sarah, for being with us. Thank you. And listeners, subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. Visit womenover70.com to access all of our episodes and easily search by name or category. And join us the first Tuesday of each month to enjoy programming beyond the podcast, hosted by Aging Reimagine Circle. The membership, membership information is available at womenover70.com. And we'll see you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined.